I'm Joe Reed, and this is a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Mom, free samples. I point, it's so good. Can we buy some? Mom ignores me, too busy digging through her folder of coupons. She spends all day Sunday, every Sunday, cutting coupons out of the newspaper. Then she makes sure we only go grocery shopping on Tuesdays. Tuesdays are double coupon day. Yes, Mom says in victory. This coupon is for $2 off. Double? That means $4 in savings. You just heard actor and one of Audiophile Magazine's 2020 Golden Voices, Ramon Diocampo, reading Rex Ogle's book, Free Lunch. Ramon Diocampo is an accomplished television, film, stage, and voice actor. He's played leading roles in theaters all around the country, including the Kennedy Center, New York's Public Theater, and Yale Rep. He's known for recurring roles in a number of television series, including The West Wing, Major Crimes, and Twelve Monkeys. But we know him best at Audiophile as one of the best narrators in the business, with more than a hundred books to his credit. And what a range of books Ramon can narrate. He's the voice of the best-selling series, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the fantasy series, World of Warcraft, Traveler, Paul Yoon's aching historical novel, Run Me to Earth, the romance novel, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and as we just heard, Rex Ogle's YA novel, Free Lunch. Ramon's audiobook work has garnered many awards, including an Audi, 11 earphone awards from Audiophile Magazine, and now he's been named a Golden Voice. I spoke with Ramon Diocampo the day of the Audi Awards in early March in pre-pandemic New York City. Ramon began our conversation with some observations about YA titles. I was actually having a conversation with another narrator yesterday where uh, I realized recently that the genre young adult does not necessarily mean that that is who the readership is. It, it often just means that that is what the subject matter is. And the readership is often adults. And yes, mm -hmm. and I actually feel like, you know, the, the generation that sort of came up through Harry Potter and Harry Potter, I connected to because of 9-11 where I was so sad during that time. I, I, was, I was in the air that day and had landed just before. And I remember going to a friend's apartment here in Manhattan because I didn't have anywhere else to go and I didn't have any family in the city. And after a week of sitting in that apartment thinking that things were going to crash all around us, she was like, have you, have you read any of these books yet? <laughs> and I said, I didn't. And she was like, I think, I think you're going to love it. And I remember it was somewhere in there and through that series that I was like, oh, this is not actually for kids. This is, this is just the subject matter. And I feel like uh, especially with the kind of literature that's coming out now, the YA moniker is, has less to do with the with who's reading it than it does, but who who's the who subject? About. Yeah. Well, certainly Wimpy Kid. Mm. That's for kids. And, Absolutely. And I'm curious about your thinking as you narrate books that really are very specifically for younger listeners. Does your approach change? 
Is I, there a way you feel like you need to get their attention and keep it? I feel like, uh, honestly, as an actor, my connection is always to what the words are on the page. Whether whether we're doing Shakespeare or if if we're doing Jeff Kinney's books, what that author has written on there has a tempo and a speed and an energy to it that the author themselves dictate. And I'm kind of there only as a uh, connection. <laughs> I, I'm only there to act as the the storyteller between uh, the page and the ear in this case. I'm only a catalyst. So if I feel like that particular story, especially with the Wimpy Kid stories, is told with kind of a verve and an energy, that's from the perspective of that character. And the difference between that character's perspective and the characters in Paul Yoon's book's perspective are, are drastically different. And the, the authors themselves instill those words with a different energy. So I don't necessarily come to it with a self-imposed idea of I have to bring all my energy to it. It's right there on the page. Like the page calls for all the energy, <laughs> you know. And something like Paul's book, as soon as you start reading it, like you sense a very – a, a very steady heartbeat. He knows exactly that sparsity of where he is. Whereas uh, the Wimpy Kid books, with Jeff, you know, there is this energetic, uh, angst-ridden, you know, young boy who is sure he is absolutely right, you know. <laughs> And as soon as you start reading, you're already there and you want to, you know, you want to be in this place where you're like, he, he needs to be heard, you know. One, one day at a time, he needs to be heard. But I figured if I had to let go of any of my junk, I might as well make some money off of it. So I decided to have a yard sale. Mom thought that was a great idea. So she gave me a magazine that had all sorts of tips for how to do it right. Family frolic. Throw an epic yard sale. Books, toys, 50 hot tips and tricks. You've done 14 of them. Can you just fall into the characters as soon as you open the book? Man? I can. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I feel like that's like one of, that's one of my hamlets. <laughs> uh, all of those kids. But, but yeah, it's true. And I get crazy notes on uh, uh, social media for, from fans. My mother, in fact, this is a this is a good story. Um, my mother was driving to Las Vegas uh, with my family, and she stops at a rest stop, and she's walking through kind of like half a mall, and uh, they have like a kiosk in the middle, and I don't know, she's she's buying something at the kiosk, and they ask her for her card, and she has to like sign her name, and she's like, oh, it's uh, it's Carol Diocampo, and she said this giant shaved-headed motorcycle dude went, Diocampo like Ramon Diocampo? <laughs> and she was like, yes. And since she was in Las Vegas, she was like, oh, are, are you an actor? Are you do, you, do you know him maybe from L.A.? And he was like, no, no, I listen to all the Wimpy Kid books, my kids and I in the car, and I, I always wanted to know, like, who is that guy? Like, where, he has so much energy. <laughs> my mom was like, it was the weirdest version of of a fan conversation that she'd ever uh, achieved. And I was like, that's that's amazing. <gasps> that is fun. Free lunch was just, oh, what a heartbreaker. And it just seemed to be based on Rex Ogle's own story. Yes. Yes. That play had so much um, blood like, like inside of that 
just the the opening of the the mother character as soon as you start you can feel that the passion that she has and the passion that he has and how they're trying so hard to get through their lives while being held down like they are that book's incredible yeah i thought it was incredible too because and vicious oh, was it ever yeah and it, and you really feel it like you you know, I'm sure you've spoken a lot of narrators, but you end those books and you have a very hard day, you know. And me and my engineer would sit down and be like, I think, I think, I think we need a break, <laughs> you know. This would be, that was definitely one of those books where we needed time. Yeah, well, as a listener, I needed time. I, I know it's based on Rex's life, but free lunch, getting free lunch at a school, it's both a benefit for kids, but Boy, is it challenging for them. And so many kids face that challenge of being publicly seen as poor and all the connotations that that carries every single day. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I I like all of the literature that shines a light on that in a way that still makes it accessible. Like there's There's nothing in that book that doesn't feel like something anyone can connect to. And yet the book is about something so individual and, and so personal to Rex that you have to think that the reason it's so accessible is because of how much of his heart he left on that table. Um, and you, you get it from, from reading it. You, I'm sure you get it from listening to it. But um, you feel his big beating heart out there. And it's amazing how generous he is with it. And as a narrator, you, you get in there and you go, I have to I have to come here with that, you know. Mm -hmm. I have to come here with all of the hurt that I've been through to add to this, you know, this amazing storyteller's event, really. When Mom steers our old two-door Toyota hatchback into a parking space in front of Kroger, I mumble, I hate grocery shopping. Well, how else are we going to eat? Mom says. Eat what? You never get anything I like. When you get a job and start paying for the groceries yourself, you can buy whatever you want. I can't get a job. I'm a kid. Sounds like your problem, not mine. When Liam goes to the store with his mom, she lets him get anything he wants. Pop-tarts, toaster strudel, Twix bars, Pringles, whatever. That's because Liam is a spoiled brat, and his mom is rich, they aren't rich just because they live in a house. Well, they're richer than us. Rex's mom is Mexican-American, as is his grandmother. And you nail those very different accents. Mm -hmm. I mean, because his mother is younger, has been in the States longer. And you also do the part when his abuelo speaks in Spanish. Yes. It's it's kind of a fine line because you don't want it to sound like a parody, but you want it to you want to really honor that accent. Yes, I actually feel like oftentimes I'll look at a book, especially like Rex's, and think what you want to do as an actor is find a way to put across that these characters are existing without ever having any, anybody think that this is being animated. Exactly. That that's how I would play the character if we were doing it on a stage, you know? And I wouldn't want you to think that I was making fun of anybody or or anything like that, but actually just inhabiting this character and where they are. Well, you have a lot of cultural dexterity. 
Yes. Uh, I have a lot of I've, I have a lot of I have a good ear for it for sure. <laughs> um, but because my family is so pan worldly, I have relatives from Spain and from Asia and the South Pacific, and I grew up in Virginia. You know, so a large part of my of, about, of my sound is at actually weirdly Northern Virginia where everybody grew up sounding like Brian Gumbel. Um, <laughs> you know, like we're not quite Southern, but we are. Uh, and, yeah, and 20 minutes away is very Southern, and but we're also kind of Northeastern. My parents immigrated and their parents immigrated to another country from two other countries. So there are abuelitas and, and lolas, depending on where we are. And I think that it's interesting because audiobooks really allows me to bring all of those those understandings of all that different kind of pan-worldly idea into my performances. And nobody ever asks me not to. So it's oh, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a great opportunity for me now. And you were also classically trained as an actor. You went to Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you think your training also has helped you as an audiobook narrator. I guess like one of the biggest things is that there is a lot more technique than people would expect to being able to record for 20 hours a session or every day. And that is a, a, a vocal training that you absolutely need. And there's a vocal training that helps you with the experience of how far you can move your voice or what the levels of expression can be because of that. But I think another portion of it, which listeners may may not realize, is that that acting training actually helps you deconstruct the text so that when you're looking at text, when I when I look at text, I I can see the characters. I delineate their objectives, their obstacles, their tactics. I can I can see the storylines that the author is moving towards and put them together almost dramaturgically so that it's not just what's coming up next on the page or, or after that, but that there is a technical artistry to being able to put it together as if we're doing a play, as if we're doing a, or, or a film that the author has already done, um, but that the performer can bring to it with a, a level of training and understanding and analysis that sometimes you don't think about when, you're, when you don't consider the training that you've already had. Right. You know. <laughs> How did you get into audiobook narration? I got really lucky. Uh, Claudia Howard met me just after I graduated from Carnegie Mellon. She and my my agent, they, they went to school together. And Claudia Howard was running recorded books at the time. And uh, she sat me down and we I did an audition for her. And maybe six or seven months later, she was like, I think I have something for you. And... That book won an award, and then pretty much I was inside of the recorded books stable, and I got, I got mail there. Like the, <laughs> I was working over there while living in Manhattan and doing work in the theater and in film and television commercials over here. And when I moved to Los Angeles, she said that you know she she had one group of people that she thought I should work with out there who would record for her, and that's how I met Deborah Dion who at the time was was working out of a closet and her and Bob were were punching me in from their living room with with their dog and I was 
sitting in a closet with a bunch of clothes and her feather boa, <laughs> wrapped around, and and just a microphone hanging from the ceiling. You still do theater. You still you still do television. Mm-hmm. You still do film. I do. And and you do audiobooks. Can you talk about sort of the different tools that you use with audiobooks or how they're used differently when it's just the voice? Yeah, yes, definitely. You know, one of the things with audiobooks that I, I touched on earlier is you have to have a stamina that that you don't use the same way with um, – especially with television. Television and, and film are these little sprints, television especially. Uh, you have these, these little takes that have to be incredibly honest and often very, very short. And so there is a, a big buildup and then – you have to be super honest and release it quickly. Inside of an audiobook, you've got to know that there is 14 hours somebody will be hearing this, which means you're going to be in there for 30 hours figuring it out and putting down this performance that you've prepped hours and hours and hours beforehand. So the level of stamina that you have to have and uh, alacrity is so high that you don't realize how taxing that can be. There is no hurry up and wait with audiobooks. Uh, in film and television, there's a lot of, you know, sit in your trailer and try to stay up, and it, and that's exhausting. But with audiobooks, you, you're getting into a booth, and you're beginning at the top of or at the bottom of a mountain, and you are going to climb all the way up this thing before making that delivery. So I feel like the the biggest difference in the way that you use your instrument is one you have to figure out how to keep your energy in a place for a long period of time and the other one you have to be able to pop your energy up and be ready on a moment's notice it sounds like it's closer to theater where it's a 3 hour stretch and it's the same thing you yes. know for 6 nights a week except with theater it's a real collaboration and you get to get energy from other yes. people whereas with audiobooks it's yeah so you fun. have to find a way to like get that battery running and and that's that's true i it's much harder than i think the other disciplines inside of acting are because of that you have to find a way to not only do your own character analysis, but the character analysis for all the other characters and figure out all of their objectives and make sure that your whole cast is doing very well, <laughs> you know, because uh, at least in the theater, there's a live audience that's like a battery and they will give you back energy and you will have other people to play off of. You know, that four and a five hour stretch of audiobook is is going to be just you in a one-man show for five hours a day, <laughs> you know, that's... I was listening to The Patron Saint of Nothing, Randy Reba's book about a Filipino-American teenager who spends a summer in the Philippines before he's going to college. Another yeah. YA title that really isn't a YA, I mean... Yes. And a National Book Award finalist. Mm-hmm. And it's so textured and so layered yeah. Can you tell me the experience of narrating that book for you? Uh, well, you know, you know that book in particular is so incredibly personal. I know people who are who are living through that right now in Manila, in the Philippines. Like the the things that Randy is speaking about about being um, specifically for him Filipino American in that play and going back to the Philippines and and 
diving into a subculture that he doesn't understand like, is something that I definitely understand. And I feel like one of the things that he is really able to touch in is the complications of family um, inside of that culture that resonates with everybody. You absolutely understand what happens there, even though you're, you could be totally foreign from that cultural experience. But what he brings there is so vicious and so fascinating from a YA perspective. And we should just say, and the reason he went back home is because his cousin was caught up in Duterte's Duterte. war on drugs and murdered. Yes. Yes. And this is a story that I hear about all the time, what's happening in the Philippines. And also the, I don't know how to say it, there are arguments for and against what's going on in the Philippines in the Philippines. <laughs> so I think Randy actually connects to that too where he doesn't make a, a full decision about what is happening over there without also giving, giving cause to the people who agree with what is happening or who uh, are working inside of that, that foundation or inside of that government. Oh, it's not simple-minded at all. No. It uh, is so complex. And it's, it's so well done. Yeah, I agree. I thought you'd want to know, he adds. When? I ask, my chest tightening. Yesterday. I'm quiet for a long time. What happened? I mean, how did he? I can't say the word. He sighs. It doesn't matter. What? I ask, why not? He's gone. That's it. He was 17. I say, 17-year-olds don't randomly. He takes off his glasses and rubs his eyes. Sometimes they do. And it's dedicated to the hyphenated, which I found incredibly moving. You know, and it really is also about what it means to be on both sides of the hyphen, wherever that hyphen may exist, whether it's Filipino-American, in that case, Chinese-American, African-American. Right. Did, did you look for yourself to be represented when you were younger? Did you see yourself in books and film and television? Did no, absolutely not. Of course not. <laughs> yeah, I do think so. Uh, no, it's, it's so interesting because that's actually a conversation that I feel like is more, is now, is much more present now. And something that we weren't, we weren't allowed to speak of before. I, I was talking to a narrator yesterday who asked about me starting and I said, and I told her, I went to a great school, and we had a showcase afterwards, and I was brought into uh, the office with a really very, very high-end casting director who really liked my work, loved what I, what I had done in the showcase, um, and said, you know, I'm just going to be upfront with you. I like you a lot, but I am going to be bringing you in for gang members. Like, that's, that, that's just the truth. And he was not mean about it. You know, nothing like that. But I think he was like, you seem more educated than this thing, but you're, you're a brown person <laughs> here. Uh, I'm calling in for that. And that's what I did. If you look at my early, my early stuff, it is all, it's a bunch of gang members before a certain point. Because everybody when I was growing up who was my skin color were um, gang members on, on TV. That's all we did. And audiobooks was the first place immediately that was not what I did. 
the very first thing that Claudia Howard gave me was a, a sweet young boy whose grandfather was dying, you know, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. But I never saw myself in, in any television or film or theater growing up that I feel like I'm on the front line of representation now. Yeah. Um, and for the hyphenates, I feel like I'm on the front line of representation for them, even inside books, for everyone who is dash American, you know, who is everything and I get to be because I really am. Doing a, a sure. slightly U-turn. I, I really do want to talk about Red, White, and Royal yes. Blue. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Of course. Your romance. Casey McQuiston's book. And romance. And I rarely do any romances, too. And it's been getting a lot of attention. A 2019 best book from Audiophile Magazine. And it's a romance between a prince of England, Harry, and the son of the president, Alex. And the president happens to be a woman. Personally, a snarky Alex who was so getting up my nose. And yes. then there was lovely Harry who I was just so completely falling in love with myself. You had so many different voices to navigate in that. How did you get your arms around that one? It helps that my wife is British. Oh, golly. <laughs> is she? Well, yes. well. So my, my wife is from Liverpool. So I've spent a lot of time in England and, you know, uh, I'm an Anglophile and I uh, went to the first thing that happens in classical training is you learn a bunch of different British dialects. But you don't know the breadth of it until you're, you're living with somebody who is British and, and only speaks in, in, a, in a British dialect. You know, there's something lovely, especially about Harry, where I kept thinking that she's written somebody there who is a prince, but not necessarily in the prince way that we view princes or how princes speak in in the world. And I kept thinking like he's he's like a very young, like even pre-movie time, like Hugh Grant. Like there's something about him that's oh. that's a little bit shy and he's he's not exactly sure like where he where he is, but you know, which is different from Alex because Alex has this energy to him. Um and confidence. Yeah, and you have to see both. And that's another thing in audiobooks is you, you could have two confident characters in a TV show and you know that they're different because they look different. But in an audiobook, if, if it's just one person who's speaking, you kind of have to be like, what is the connection between these two characters? And part of it is that like one of them has this energy that's confident and knows himself and is making his decisions and the other one who – is almost more politic about it. Really, has he has to like figure out what does this mean inside of his life as a royal, inside of his, how, what is it that he is dealing with that that is still honest for him? Well, it's um, such a beautiful same-sex romance. It mm -hmm. really is. And what I admire about that book is it is both improbable and yet it has such accuracy. <laughs> don't don't you think? Don't you feel yes. like you're you're almost for a second being like. You know, hashtag history, huh? Like you, you feel like, did, did this happen? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I was on the West Wing and I spent a year on that show. And to this day, people think that, that the Obama administration happened before the West Wing. But we were years before. Yeah. And I feel like this is the same sort of situation where what this conversation is, is just an inevitability. Did you have fun narrating it? Oh, my gosh. Time? It was the best time. Yeah. It was great to be asked to do it. And I don't tend to get asked to do 
romance books, uh, although this comes from a young perspective, so that that would make sense. And this comes from a political perspective, so that makes sense for me as well. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, I was like, Macmillan knows me. <laughs> I was like, you guys know me. Like, this is right up my alley. That particular kind of rhythm, that particular kind of humor and intelligence and even romantic quality really sparked with me. Behind his bedroom door, he can sit and put Holland Oates on the record player in the corner, and nobody hears him humming along like his dad to Rich Girl. He can wear the reading glasses he always insists he doesn't need. He can make as many meticulous study guides with color-coded sticky notes as he wants. He's not going to be the youngest elected congressman in modern history without earning it. But nobody needs to see how hard he's kicking underwater. His sex symbol stock would plummet. It was really fun to be in the booth. Um, I bet. Yeah. It sounds like it was fun. I mean, as I was listening, I know narrating is hard work, but I was also thinking, God, I hope he's having as much fun as I think he's having. <laughs> I feel like if you do it right, you know, the joy that you're getting from it, you should be trying to record. You're like, ah, there's stuff in there that, that you're like, I don't know if they're going to let me do this, you know, or uh, I have to narrate key smashes. And I was like, I'm just going to... I'm just going to put it in. Like, this is what I think it is. And it's still there. So I know because on Twitter they're like, he narrated a key smash. And so they, <laughs> so they like put... Like... Do you find that uh, audiobook narration actually helps you with your film and theater work? I think it makes me a little more prepared for a few reasons. I can pick up a, a script and cold read better than anyone. <laughs> I bet um, you can, too. Yeah, I can do a very quick scan of the thing, and I'm, I'm going to be pretty close to what you thought you were looking for. Um, I don't have to jump through a hoop of I'm not sure what I sound like, which a lot of actors do, sort of go through this like, oh, I don't know what it is when I start speaking. We, we'll see what happens. Like, I don't go through that thing. But as far as text is concerned, I'm not, I'm not surprised by it anymore. You know, I'm not surprised by just the amount and levels or commitment that you have to have because an audiobook is nothing if, if not a, a thousand percent commitment everywhere. And you're named a golden voice by Audiophile Magazine. Bravo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is a huge honor. I, I am so moved by, by that. I, you know, that group of, of people are, are incredible People that I've, I look up to and, and Robin and Audiophile Magazine are people who have championed the, this, this industry and really honestly listen and read and know what it is that we're all doing in, in a way that elevates all of us that these things exist. Um, and it's amazing to be considered among among the group. I, I can't tell you how moved I am by it, actually. I'm incredibly honored. Well, I, it is so well-deserved, and many congratulations. The books that you do, my God, they are so good. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That's actor and one of Audiophile's 2020 Golden Voices, Ramon Diocampo. You can find reviews for Free Lunch, Run Me to Earth, Red, White, and Royal Blue, and all of his many titles at audiophilemagazine.com. Subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. Then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter 
at audiophilemag. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.